Welcome to another installment of Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the channel that compares what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And you're going to notice something, that this episode of Fighting for the Faith isn't over on YouTube. Uh, no, we had to post it somewhere else, and let me explain why. So YouTube uh, is notorious for the algorithm, right? That's how people discuss it. But YouTube utilizes uh, artificial intelligence to uh, kind of scour through the audio uh, and video of the the of the the videos that get posted on YouTube to look specifically for uh, community guidelines, violations, and copyright strikes and things like this. And here's the issue, is that the artificial intelligence over at YouTube is not intelligent enough to make a distinction, and it's an important distinction, a distinction between criticizing um, ideologies that are contrary to their community guidelines or promoting ideologies that are co contrary to the community guidelines. It doesn't matter if you're critiquing it or not, YouTube would see it as a violation of their community guidelines to post anything up that would quote ideologies that are contrary to their community guidelines. Therefore, we've had to, well, you know, uh, move this episode of Fighting for the Faith over to a different platform. So, uh, by the way, we, I, you know, I think we'll probably end up posting videos here as well. With uh, the more, the merrier. But this isn't our, this isn't our primary focus when we do our, uh, when we do our videos. That being the case, you, you got to understand, we're doing this so that we do not risk losing our channel by playing the hateful ideology that we're about to play and critique here on this episode of Fighting for the Faith. So what are we going to be looking at today? We're going to be looking at, uh, if you were to think about the broad topic, uh, it's become a hot topic, uh, and the broad topic is white Christian nationalism. However, I'm going to be focusing in on a very specific branch of white Christian nationalism, and uh, I, I don't know what to call it. I, I would use the working title, the Mollerites, because uh, they're, one of their visible leaders, thought leaders, is a fellow by the name of Corey Mahler, and uh, he recently got uh, some... Uh, national media attention from a Rolling Stone magazine article written about him. And uh, and so what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on the Mollerites. Why? Because I'm a confessional Lutheran and uh, Corey Mahler claims to be a confessional Lutheran also. Uh, but I'm going to note something here at the very beginning of this, is that this is a dangerous ideology that we're going to critique, and we're going to take it on biblically. Uh, if It would be one thing if this thing just remained a political ideology and people were trying to recruit people into believing this political ideology. The issue is, is that white Christian nationalism is an ideology, and I would note a satanic one, masquerading as true Christian piety. However, it is not true Christian piety, nor is a proper understanding of the scriptures at all. We'll demonstrate that throughout this episode. Instead, white Christian nationalism is to uh, true Christian piety as Dylan Mulvaney is to uh, true womanhood. It's masquerading. So we're going to take off the lipstick and mascara off of white Christian nationalism in the wig and expose it for what it is. It's not Christian piety. It's something completely different. And I will also note here, 
at the, at the very beginning of this episode, that I have no problem admitting that there are some very serious problems uh, that are going on in American politics. Yeah, I, I, I don't uh, deny that that's the case. However, white Christian nationalism is not the solution. For all of its attacks against the degeneracy that's taking place in America, white Christian nationalism is itself a form of degeneracy. And we know this historically also because we've seen the kind of fruit that this ideology bears, uh, just look at what happened to uh, Germany with National Socialism and you'll get what I'm talking about. So all that being said, let me explain to you what we're going to do today and it's going to be a long episode. And what we are going to cover is dark. And I, I mean like evil kind of dark. It might be tough for some of you to sit through this in one setting. That being the case, you need to understand the arguments of the white Christian nationalists so that you can marshal biblical texts against them. And you have to understand where they are coming from, because like all ideologies, there is a consistent logic to this thing that internally works within its own system, but it's not compatible with biblical Christianity because it's something very different. In fact, I liken a white Christian nationalists to flat earthers. Uh, and in fact, they argue very much the same way. And you'll note uh, if you've uh, ever seen the, uh, the Netflix documentary uh, Behind the Curve, which is a documentary about flat earthers. That, it's a real scream of, of a documentary. And the reason why is because at several points in the movie, uh, two in, in particular, uh, the flat earthers engaged in scientific experiments, which ended up disproving the flat earth but they had no way to process it because it didn't fit within their narrative. In fact, the reason why people are flat earthers is not because the evidence shows that the earth is flat. The reason why people are flat earthers is because of the conspiracy narrative uh, that it, that lives and exists around the flat earth concept. And so, you know, in that conspiracy narrative, NASA is the evil bad guy, right? And no evidence can ever defeat a flat earther. White Christian nationalists are the same way. Uh, everything is about the conspiracy narrative, and the conspiracy narrative will include the Jews and things like this. And they never let facts get in the way of their ideology because their ideology isn't based on facts. Their ideology is based upon conspiracy ideas and uh, and the demonizing of different groups and things like this and race baiting. That's a big part of what they do. So we're going to peel this back and we're going to offer a biblical critique to their ideas. There is a lot of ground to cover. This is a long episode. I make no apologies for that. In fact, if you see cuts in the uh, in this episode, because it's because I ended up having to get up and go and get a drink or use the bathroom because that's how long this is going to be. So let me tell you where we're going to start. We're In fact, hang on a second here. I got something in my eye. There we go. Today, we are going to start uh, with uh, with four episodes of the Stone Choir podcast, which is put out by Corey Mahler and a fellow who goes by the moniker of Woe. Uh, don't know who Woe is, but uh, you know, Woe does not want to, his identity broadcast, otherwise he would broadcast it. Mahler doesn't have a problem with letting people know who he is. So we're going to listen to the two of them, and we're going to look at four of their episodes uh, as it relates to, uh, well, actually three episodes re regarding race and one in particular about Christian nationalism. 
nationalism. And uh, so there's different sound bites that we're going to be listening to along the way. And the goal in listening to these is to understand how their ideology works, why they think the way they think. There are certain premises in their in their argumentation that once the the premise is granted, then the conclusions follow logically. However, the premises are the faulty bits, and so their conclusions are necessarily faulty and errant as well. So we're going to start by uh, listening to uh, Woe and Mahler uh, hate hate on, and that's a good way to put it, this concept. When Have you ever heard anyone say something to the effect of, well, there's one race, the human race, right? Well, in their way of thinking, this is where everything goes off the rails. <laughs> this is an anathema statement, okay? You cannot say this and still be a Christian, at least the way they argue. So let's listen as they explain to us from uh, their foundation episode regarding race, and uh, and let's see if we can make heads or tails of what they're saying, and we'll, we'll peel things back along the way. So here we go again. Um, this is going to be some dark stuff. So with that out of the way, we're going to begin with, as I mentioned, the, the first fundamental misconception that is widely applied among Christians, and that is that there is one race, the human race. And so the argument that we often hear from Christians when it comes to race, as stated, is one race, the human race. And the underlying argument for that is that because we are all ultimately descended from Adam, we are all of the race of Adam. The problem with that statement is that it is both true and false. Okay, now, so they're taking issue with the idea. There's one race, the human race, and they recognize the statement is both true and false. And so that being the case, one of the things I've noted about these guys is that they are masters of equivocation. They, when somebody makes a statement and they're using it in a way that's true, they don't acknowledge that that particular sense is true. <laughs> so, you know, so they recognize that people are equivocating, but these guys equivocate like nobody's business. All right, we, we continue. It is true because to speak of men as the race of Adam is accurate. Correct. But to then conclude from that that all men are of the same race is to equivocate with regard to the term race. Now, you're going to hear them explaining this. The way they define race has to do with a, a basic view that human beings have subspecies. Uh, and so they, they, they liken humanity to like dogs. So let, let me explain. So dogs, you know, you have every one of every dog can actually breed with each other. Okay, that's because they're all part of the same species, which is the canine species. But within uh, within the dogs, there within dogs there are breeds. You have you know Chihuahuas and German Shepherds and Malamutes and things like this. And so what they're basically what they basically when they talk about race, they are talking about something akin to dog breeds. That uh, that that people who are descendants of uh, ancestors from Africa they are similar to a dog breed. So they'll say that that's a race as well. 
Now, I, I'm not going to argue with their definitions at this point, but you just need to understand that when they hear the word one race, the human race, they see it, they hear it as an exclusion of the idea that there are different races, and by races, the, the, it's akin to breeds of humans. So you have the Asian race, you have the African race, you have European races, uh, you know, then you have you know, a, you know, Arab and things like this. There, there's different breeds of humanity. So the, on the one hand, they recognize that there is a right way to say that and a wrong way to say that. They always, they always assume that when somebody says there's one race, the human race, that they are using it incorrectly, as if to say that, to obliterate that there are somehow distinctives or differences between different ethnicities. That's how they always hear it. So keep that in mind. Race can refer to various levels in the hierarchy, in the ancestry of a particular life form. And so, for instance, a good example would be you can speak of the race of dogs, usually for dogs instead, but it's the same thing, same concept here. If you speak of the breed of golden retriever, you are speaking of something more specific than just dog. They're all dogs. So a golden retriever, a Pomeranian, a Rottweiler, these are all dogs. But they are different breeds of dog. The same for humans. You can speak of the race of Adam, human beings, as being one species, because we are, in fact, one species. By any reasonable definition of that term, all of humanity, one species, the race of Adam. But we have, over time, according to God's good ordering of creation... Now, note, he said, according to God's good ordering of creation... Here's where we have to note something here. They believe that these subspecies of humans, and not subspecies, sub-races of, you know, of humans, you know, are technically like subspecies, that God, that these are sacrosanct, that these were created by God and cannot in any way be tampered with. You'll see that as we go along. But we have over time, according to God's good ordering of creation become separate races distinct from each other because as we moved we adapted to the areas where we started to live god designed it that way it's very clear he gave us the order be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it that was what we were supposed to do different groups moved to different areas and so as that happened you have the creation of the different races as they exist today Okay, so in their way of thinking, again, there's one species and there are different races. So, you know, that's, this is how they think in terms of things and that God created these races and he, he, he does not want them messed with is a, b a good way to put it. So on to the next quote, and uh, you'll note that I have to kind of manually enter in the, uh, the, the coordinates here uh, so that we can listen to it. But the next quote is kind of building off of the same idea that uh, races are subspecies. This is how they see it, subspecies of the one species, the human, the homo sapien. And we can say that uh, Chihuahua and a healer are subspecies, we're terrified to say that human races are subspecies. We completely preclude the idea of subspecies when talking about human beings, in part because 
of the implications. Does it mean that an African somehow has a different degree of value than a European or an Asian? That's a moral question. And the answer before God is no. Okay, nobody, note the qualifier. So the question is, does a European have more value than an African? Before God, no. That's an important qualifier because as you see as their ideology develops, we're down at the bottom level at this point, working with foundational concept. These are initial premises uh, that uh, when we get to a more fully developed ideology on their part, one could argue is that, th that they do not have a high value uh, view of anybody who isn't white European. We continue. That's never going to be an argument you're going to hear from either of us. Jesus died for all homo sapiens. Jesus died for every descendant of Adam. That's all of us, regardless of any of these differences that we're talking about in these episodes. We will never make any argument that says, well, this man is different than from this man. Therefore, God cares about this man and doesn't care about this man. That's absolutely the polar opposite of why we're talking about it in the first place. We're talking about it because Satan is using this as a wedge to divide Christ's church and to divide all of humanity in ways that are unnatural. Satan is using the denial of race to divide humanity in ways that are, quote, unnatural. Keep those thoughts in mind because, again, how they think about these things is critical in understanding why they say the things they say, why they come to the political conclusions that they come to. We continue. Now, there are natural divisions, and that is what race is. Race is a natural division. As you look from Babel, what was the story of Babel? All right. Now, this is where we're going to note the one of the very first and primary twisting of scriptures that is an integral part of their theology, their ideology, is a twisting of what the Tower of Babel is about. Okay, so let's take a look at it real quick here in the book of Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11 says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they still have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Okay, straight up. Now, note here, what's the sin? You're going to hear them say 
that this is the sin of one race, the human race. You're going to hear him say that the cry of Babel is one race, the human race. That is known as the Bible twisting technique of eisegesis, reading something into the text that isn't there. And so I will note that a good resource that recently came available is from a website called Operation Valkyrie, the operation-valkyrie.blog, sorry, operation.valkyrie.group, and they have a blog. And there is an article that came out on April 19th, 2023, titled, The Sin of Babel Isn't Multiculturalism. And in this article, uh, the, they, they reproduce Martin Luther's commentary. His, Martin Luther, you know, who died long before there was Christian nationalism, uh, at least the white Christian nationalism, uh, he doesn't see this text as having anything to do with people claiming one race, the human race. Instead, he sees this as ungodly, prideful sinners resisting God's will and attacking the church. And so we'll put a link to this down below, but you're going to note that if you turn this into a the Tower of Babel into a story whereby you basically then read into it. Whenever anyone says one race, the human race, they are engaging in the sin of Babel. That person is twisting the Bible. And I will note, this is a core foundational text for white Christian nationalists like Mahler and Woe. And they twist it. They twist its meaning and its sin, and they pull out references to Babel with frequency throughout their podcast episodes that basically say, anybody who says one race, the human race, they're taking us back to Babel. It's a sin against God and all this kind of stuff. You'll note that humanity after the flood was commanded by God to, you know, to multiply and to fill the earth. They were defying God's command to fill the earth. By the way, races are not the result of sin. <laughs> okay, a good way to think about it is that Adam and Eve had all the genetic variations possible to make up the different ethnicities of humanity today. It, it, it was all there in the in the DNA of Adam and Eve, and obviously it was present in Noah's family as well, because that that that's a, that then bears out that their their children and their children's children, children's children, as they then were spread across the face of the earth, forced by God who changed their languages. You'll note that the 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 genetic I don't want to say mutations because mutations has a negative connotation to it. But the, uh, the 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 genetic changes that resulted in Europeans having white skin, which was a necessity for you know it was it was, you kind of think of it, it was an advantage if you're living in northern climes as opposed to people who are living in sub-Saharan Africa having way darker skin. That's that that by the way genetically is is, a, is an absolute advantage for them living in sub-Saharan Africa. So you'll note that the, the, basically what happens is, is that the differences that we see in ethnicities today is a result of genetic variation through uh, limited gene pools that uh, people you know breed with each other within those limited gene pools. But at no point is, is race even mentioned in the story of the Tower of Babel. So when somebody says one race, the human race, 
that is not automatically or even remotely invoking some kind of a sin that is being dealt with by God at the Tower of Babel. These guys are twisting the scripture. In fact, I would note something here. What they're really getting after, and this will be a um, this will be a, a you know kind of a teaser as to where this is all going to go. What they're really going after is the concept known as egalitarianism. Now, I got to make a note here. I'm talking about political egalitarianism, because egalitarianism within the church has clearly brought us women pastors, which scripture forbids. But when we talk about legal egalitarianism, egalitarianism in the realm of civic justice, listen to what the basic concept is behind it, okay? So uh, egalitarianism is a school of thought within political philosophy that builds on the concept of social equality. Prioritizing it for all people. Egalitarian doctrines are generally characterized by the idea that all humans are equal in fundamental worth or moral status. Egalitarianism is the doctrine that all citizens of a state should be accorded exactly equal rights. Egalitarian doctrines have motivated many modern social movements and ideas, including the Enlightenment, feminism, civil rights, international human rights, and things like this. Now, I'm not, I'm in no way praising feminism. I I would think that this is a perversion of that. But the basic idea is this, is that within the United States and many Western nations now, or I should say many Western democracies or even uh, you know constitutional monarchies it, 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 it doesn't matter what their what their stripe of government governance is the basic idea is is that your ethnic origin doesn't ever give you um, a preferential legal standing before the civil government so that everybody has equal rights before the law, before the government, okay, you know, the right to life, to, you know, happiness, you know, the the right to bear arms, the right to uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, things like this, okay, so, you know, that, and that, you don't, the government doesn't sit there and go, okay, you group over here, you who are, are descendants from children from Europe, uh, you get preferential treatment while you who over here, who are children uh, from descendants of, of those who come from Africa, a different ethnicity, you do not get a preferential, you do not get equal rights with the Europeans, you get lesser rights, okay? The idea behind egalitarianism is before the law, your race, your religion, your gender, that before the law is that nobody has preferential treatment. That's concept behind egalitarianism. So if you were to go back into the history of the United States, by the way, this is a very famous photo by Robert Frank, a very famous photographer. Uh, he made a trip through the United States, and this was a photograph shot in the, in the South back in the 50s of a bus. And what do you see on the bus? Well, you see people who have an African ethnicity, they are descendants of those from Africa. They are sitting at the back of the bus. Whereas those who have an ethnicity from those who come from European uh, countries, they, they get to sit at the front of the bus, right? This is an, ex- an example of not egalitarianism, legal egalitarianism, but something completely different. And I will note 
that the white Christian nationalists are arguing for a return to segregation. Okay, so when they hear there's one race, the human race, what they're trying to do is create a false biblical argument that this is that this is contrary to scripture that you cannot treat legally all races of humanity the same they are not equal they should be treated differently that's their argument and they argue that it is contrary to submission to christ to believe otherwise Okay, And so, you know, you'll know in their way of thinking, and you'll see this, this is a necessary step in order to protect people, right? And, uh, and what they want is a return to this, to where, um, you know, uh, people from African ethnicities are required to drink out of different drinking fountains or to get their ice cream from a different window than those who have a European ethnicity, Okay, keep that in mind. This is where they're going. So what they're really after is this idea that before the law, that the law should treat all races equally. And they are going to try to make the argument that this is contrary to the will of Christ. So we continue. The people who all shared a common language when they were told by God, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. They said, no. We're not going anywhere. We're going to build a tower that's going to be a monument to our own greatness. It's going to keep us together in this place, and we will be as God. We will be magnificent, and everyone will respect us for how unified we are. That is the spirit. Note the, uh, note the eisegesis here. He's added things to the text from there in Genesis 11. Let me back up and listen again. We will be magnificent, and everyone will respect us for how unified we are. He added the unified bit. That is the spirit of this age. One race, the human race, is the cry of Babel. <laughs> no, it isn't. That's straight up eisegesis. And this is a core text to their ideology. And this is a very overt attempt on their part to make themselves appear to be in line with God's will. I mean, if you believe, if you believe that uh, we should uh, treat all races the same because there's one race, the human race, we're all from the human species, right? And you are going against segregation and going back to it, then you are guilty of the sin of Babel. No, you're not. They're guilty of breaking. Now, here's where I'm going to have to make an important note for those of you who are not Lutheran. The Lutherans order the Ten Commandments differently, okay? And so the Second Commandment in Lutheranism, which, by the way, is the same as the historic church, is, is, uh, is the commandment against uh, taking God's name in vain. And what Woe just did it there is he broke the second commandment. He has taken God's name in vain and is teaching false doctrine by twisting his word. The story of the Tower of Babel has nothing, nothing whatsoever to do with the cry of one race, the human race. So I would note here is that when somebody says those words, one race, the human race, what they are generally arguing for, especially in the American context, is that we do not return to this. 
that we are to treat everybody equally because all human beings are human beings and the law should not make a distinction between preferentially treating one race over another. This, in the white Christian nationalist way of thinking, is anathema. And that's why they have to twist the scripture to at least make it appear like God is opposed to treating all races the same equally under the law. That's the game that they're playing. So let's let, let me back this up so we can kind of hear Woe make the case again, and we'll continue. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. They said, no, we're not going anywhere. We're going to build a tower that's going to be a monument to our own greatness. It's going to keep us together in this place, and we will be as God. We will be magnificent, and everyone will respect us for how unified we are. That is the spirit of this age. One race, the human race, is the cry of Babel. No, it isn't. That's a straight-up twisting of Scripture. God was so infuriated at the evil of Babel that he came down to earth and he deliberately confused the languages of men so that they couldn't talk to each other, each other anymore. Suddenly, one man could not speak to another at all. You have one guy speaking Proto-Germanic and another guy speaking Proto-Japanese. They're aliens to each other. Even though by blood they're related, God said, you know what? You didn't go your separate ways. I'm going to separate you because you're never going to be able to communicate again. And they did. That was what it finally took was the division of language to separate groups, which were then still fairly closely related because they'd, they'd only recently come off the ark. We don't know if we know how many generations, but it wasn't very long. Those people were scattered across the face of the earth by God because they were crying one race, the human race. Again, flat out lie. He added to the biblical text. Listen again. We don't know if we know how many generations, but it wasn't very long. Those people were scattered across the face of the earth by God because they were crying one race, the human race. No, they weren't. Show me where in Genesis 11... The people at Babel were crying one race, the human race. It's not there at all. Again, read Luther on this. Read that article from Operation Valkyrie, and you'll see that Luther, he, he didn't see anything there about one race, the human race. Instead, he saw pride and arrogance and a satanic way of thinking and a refusal to obey God and an attack against the church. That's how he reads this text. And then there's a follow-up article, by the way, on the, that on that website. Let me show you this. So, uh, so we've got the, uh, the 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 sin of Babel isn't multiculturalism, uh, which is one of the articles. But then they also they the, they put this together: the Church Fathers on the sin of Babel, and they quote Christostom, Augustine, and Jerome, and no mention of one race, the human race, uh, or of multiculturalism or anything like that uh, being the reason why the, the church fathers uh they they didn't see that at all so it's you'll note that it's the Mollerites and the white christian nationalists who are giving us a very very innovative new not true a twisting of this of this text that has nothing to do with the actual sin of babel they were not crying one race the human race we continue god said this is evil i am stopping it now yeah. So God said, one race, the human race is evil. I'm stopping it now. And here's the implication. If you are saying, hey, wait a second. 
all right, in, in one sense, it's absolutely true that there is one race, the human race, and that there's nothing wrong, and in fact, there, there might, it might actually be a good idea for the government to be, watch this, colorblind and treat every citizen equally regardless of their ethnicity or race. That's what people are saying when they say one race, the human race, right? To this, to these guys, oh, God is opposed to this. Oh, God doesn't want this. And so that's, you know, again, their twisting of the, of the, the text from Genesis 11 is quite notable. Those people were scattered across the face of the earth by God because they were crying one race, the human race. God said, this is evil. I am stopping it now. And so what did he do? According to Acts 17, 26, he appointed the boundaries of men and their dwelling, the boundaries of their dwelling places and the numbers of their days. He said, you're going to go here and you're going to go there. Now, real quick, this is another text that they twist, and it's from the book of Acts chapter 17. Let me pull that up. And here, here's the text. So the God who made the world and everything in it, this is out of context, by the way, yeah, being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by hand, He served, or, nor is he served by human hands, okay? Uh, th- though, uh, uh, though he needed anything, as if he, though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. So here we have a descriptive text. The Apostle Paul is preaching the gospel, sharing the good news of Christ and crucified, risen from the dead for the forgiveness of sins to the pagan idolaters in Athens at Mars Hill. And so the Apostle Paul is kind of giving, a, you know, kind of a cursory opening concept here. But what the white Christian nationalists do is that they take this verse, Acts 17, 26, and they see in it a commandment, okay? And the command is this, people from different ethnicities, from different regions of the world, because God scattered them there, it is, it is sinful for them to immigrate to the United States or go to any other part of the world. Okay. Now let me back this up, by the way, because one of the things I've done is I've uh, I've gone back through. I've been having conversations on Twitter with some of these guys uh, for the purpose of doing research, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna watch this. So here's an example of one of the Mollerites. He says the Bible explicitly states God made different races and specified their own dwelling place. This is a twisting of Acts 17:26. You just completely ignore the Old Testament where God genocided entire nations. Your spirit of the age interpretation should be mocked without mercy. So I asked a question. Is it sinful for a person of Asian descent to live in, the North, in North America and be a citizen of the United States? Well, what do you mean by sinful? You said, and this is what I said, you said the Bible explicitly states God made different races and specified their own dwelling place. Are people of Asian descent sinning, a.k.a. disobeying this command? Because they see a command there that isn't there. Okay, this command to be in the dwelling place God specified for them by immigrating to North America and by becoming U.S. citizens. Okay, one of them was honest enough and uh, he said yes. Yes. 
So, uh, you know, so I, I, you know, this is the tweet, and this fellow, one of the Maulerites, he said, yes, in most instances, although the greater sin would be one who deceived them to do such, God can and has intervened in this, for example, Canaan. So in their, in their way of reading the scriptures, Acts 27, 26 is now a command. And how is it a command? Not by itself, but by taking their false eisegesis of Genesis 11 and then making this a follow-up verse out of context and then saying, well, see, God assigned them to their different dwelling places on the earth and they need to stay there. If you are born of African descent, you stay in Africa. All right. If you are born in Asia, you stay in Asia. Okay. You don't come to America because America, America, is a uh, is a white nation, and and yeah, I'll explain why in, as we proceed. And by the way, I can tell you already, this is not gonna, we're not going to get this done in one in one episode. <laughs> We're going to have to do several episodes of Fighting for Fate to deal with this nonsense because in order to debunk it, it takes time. But already uh, we've noted that they are twisting up the scriptures horrifically. So here, uh, Woe has invoked Acts 17.26 as if it gives a commandment of God. You are to stay in your dwelling place. That's not what this text is saying. So he's twisted two texts. All right. So let's go on then to kind of like the next part of this. And one of their, their ways of thinking in their, in their rhetoric then is that if you say one race, the human race, again, they've already made it clear that there is a correct way of understanding that. Okay. Uh, and, but they make no, they do not make that distinction moving forward. Okay. Now, granted, there are some people who legitimately did basically say there are no differences in human beings whatsoever. That doesn't make sense to me because there clearly are differences between chihuahuas and pit bulls. There are differences between Great Danes and German shepherds. I don't think that there's anything wrong with saying that there are distinctions. There are differences between people of African descent and Asian descent and European descent, uh, the people of Latin America descent, that there are you there are differences between them as a result of the genetic adaptations that have happened because of the way the breeding has taken place in their gene pools. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing racist about that at all. That's just reality. Now, you'll note then what they are doing here is they're equating everybody who is calling for legal egalitarianism for the government to not make those distinctions. They are accusing them of being Marxists of being people who deny that there's any any differences whatsoever okay this, this is this is just nonsense on their part they equivocate left right and center constantly shifting definitions and not making careful distinctions for the purpose of vilifying anybody who opposes their ideology Okay, that's, that's a big part of what they do. So uh, this next part then, you're going to hear that denying race is Gnosticism. And we'll, we'll build off of that as we go. But let me plug in the correct coordinates. That's at 909 in my, uh, in my thing here. And listen, listen to this. In fact, the real denial of the faith comes from denying these things. Okay, note what Mahler is saying. If you deny their ideology, you're denying the Christian faith. 
they've already twisted Genesis 11 and Acts 17. Really? I'm going to deny my Christian faith by denying your conclusions? Again, listen to what he's saying. In fact, the real denial of the faith comes from denying these things. Because if you deny the reality of human race or these distinctions, these differences, what God did in time in the physical world, really that's a form of Gnosticism because you are denying the reality of the flesh. <laughs> I, um, uh, sir, uh, have you studied Gnosticism? Do you even know what Gnosticism is? Um, <laughs> I am pretty sure that denying your ideology and your twisting of scripture and the conclusions that you've drawn from your false exegesis does not equal Gnosticism. Okay. That this, again, you are not staying within the bounds of what words actually mean. And so that is a violation of the first article of the creed. Oh, okay. But I think possibly this is a good time to do a... All right. So if you deny what they believe, it's Gnosticism. Now, let me explain by some of their tweets, uh, more of their ideology. And boy, there are a lot of ways I can go with this. I think one of the things we're going to have to deal with right off the bat is that when I analyze any movement or denomination or a pastor or a preacher, uh, there's certain things that I try to establish in my research so that I can better understand where they're coming from. And number and number one has to do with what are their authoritative sources, okay? So I'm, I'm a confessional Lutheran. What's my authoritative source? Sola Scriptura, the scripture alone, okay? That's my authority. Now, the, the, the scriptures, I believe, are rightly understood according to the way the Book of Concord, the Lutheran Confessions, uh, you know, interprets the texts. So, um, you know, but that being the case, still, I'm a sola scriptura guy, okay? If it ain't in the Bible, it ain't theology. So you're going to know, I don't make appeals to philosophers on fighting for the faith. I don't make appeals to, uh, you know, uh, uh, ideologues or really good, smart people or influencers and stuff like this. What do I make an appeal to? What does the text say? So, you know, I don't ever sit there and say, well, this person's wrong because this, this, this absolutely contradicts Aristotle's dictum of, of this, that, or the other thing. Corey Mahler is not a sola scriptura guy. Not even close. In uh, let me, let's let's read a couple of quotes from a, a blog post of his on his website, which he has owned. He he absolutely believes this. Okay, so listen to what Corey Mahler says. I believe, as did the founding fathers and many of our European forebears, that God presented Himself to us in two revelations. The second, and arguably the lesser, of the two revelations is the Bible. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, the first, and arguably God's greatest and most glorious work, is nature. Only the Europeans of all the peoples of this earth truly understood the first revelation. Without access to the second revelation, we interpreted the first as best as we could, intuitively grasping that we are made in the image of God. Uh, we created gods in our image. That's idolatry, by the way. Our mythology is all to the glory of God. Our innate and inextricable reverence for the natural world is an expression of our unique intuition that is the natural world more than anything else that reveals to us the face of God. 
Now, I would note something here. This is idolatry. As uh, Donald and Connell would say, uh, that, that's paganism, Patrick. Yes, it is. Okay, now, it is absolutely true in Scripture that God has manifested his glory in the creation. But here's the deal. The creation is not the greatest of God's revelations of himself. The reason being is because, uh, does nature tell us the name of God? Nope. Does nature tell us how many deities there are? No. Uh, and you'll note that the, uh, the pagans of European ilk, uh, they, uh, they all worshipped multiple deities. Have you heard of the Norse gods, plural? Uh, what about the Celtic and the Welsh deities? They didn't worship a single god. And in worshiping nature, God's word condemns that as idolatry. Okay? So, yes, God is revealed in nature. But to say that the Bible is the second and lesser revelation of God? Really now? Really? So, you'll note, Corey Mahler is not a Sola Scriptura guy. He can't be, because many of his conclusions, he looks at natural data. He looks at data or natural law or thing, things like this, and he makes theological conclusions from them. Okay, So he's not a Sola Scriptura guy. He is legitimately uh, a two-source guy. Uh, but the Bible, the lesser one, is, is God's word and God's revelation for sure. Okay, and note he doesn't see the face of God in the in the birth of Christ. He sees the face of God in nature, right? Uh, but it, but it, to him, nature then is the second book, and who has total control as to how that second book is interpreted when he quotes from it? Mahler does. Okay, this is so nature is like the Book of Mormon for the. Christian white nationalists, especially the Mahlerite branch, okay, uh, they are not bound by Scripture alone at all. So we got a we got a big problem here. Um, and then let's see where I was where I was going to go on this. Um, <laughs> so one of the things you'll note here is that uh, I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but let's let's walk through some of these tweets because I think it'll kind of help because these are the conclusions that they draw to they they they, they end up in. Uh, Mahler says interracial marriage is a sinful fetish. Sinful. Okay. Sinful. Uh, further, the and arguably worse, such unions produce deeply and irreparably damaged children who never feel like they belong because they don't. <laughs> Where is he getting this? Okay. Are there exceptions? Well, sure, but extremely few and extremely far between, and exceptions prove the rule anyway. Okay. Now, here's a note. Here, since he's not a sola scriptura guy, where does he get the idea that interracial marriage is a sinful fetish? Not from the scriptures. Okay, so uh, let's. In fact, let's. Let me kind of give you a foundational concept here. In the book of Romans, chapter four, an important thing here. In the book of Romans, chapter four, you have the apostle Paul talking about the law. Okay, And in his discussion regarding the law, the Apostle Paul makes a very important statement, and that is found in verse 15. Here's what he says. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay? 
Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Let me give you a, let me give you an illustration to kind of help you work this out. If you were if you had a friend who was a Jehovah's Witness, you'll note that Jehovah's Witnesses number one, they're not Christian. They are following what's called the Arian heresy. But one of the things that's almost unique to the Jehovah's Witnesses is they do not celebrate birthdays at all. Okay, no birthday celebrations for you, right? And so you ask a Jehovah's Witness, why do you not celebrate birthdays? Why? Okay. And they will say, it's very simple. Birthdays are mentioned only two times in the Bible. And both times, bad things happened. In the Old Testament, you have the account in the book of Genesis of Pharaoh celebrating his birthday. And there was the uh, there were the two fellows, the guy who was in charge of the cup of Pharaoh and the guy who was in charge of the, the bread of Pharaoh, the baker and the wine guy. And the bread, the bread guy lost his head. He was killed by Pharaoh. Bad outcome on a birthday, right? Second time birthdays are mentioned in scripture, you have the uh, you have Herod having his birthday and the and the daughter of uh, Herodias uh, she does her dirty dancing bit and John the Baptist loses his head and his and his and his split and his head ends up on a plate okay so the Jehovah's Witness says well therefore we can say definitively that God doesn't want us to celebrate birthdays because bad things happened the two times that birthdays are mentioned the person who knows their Bible says, yeah, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. Is there an actual command in scripture that forbids birthdays? No, there isn't. There is no command where God says, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not celebrate birthdays. So coming back to Mahler here, Mahler says interracial marriage is a sinful fetish. Well, that means that he should be able to produce a biblical text that clearly says that marrying somebody with a different subspecies race or different ethnicities is sinful. But there is no biblical text that says that. In fact, when it comes to marriages, the only limitations on both the people of Israel and on Christians given by God are in relation to marrying somebody who is a believer. Now, if you, are, if you become a Christian uh, after you're married and your spouse is not a Christian, you can, you can absolutely remain married to them. The Bible doesn't forbid that, nor does it require you to divorce them. But if you are a Christian before you get married, Scripture is clear. You should be seeking a godly spouse who has the same faith that you have. Um, and so that's where the scriptural prohibitions are. But there are no prohibitions regarding marrying somebody of a different ethnicity. So let's kind of develop the thought here then. Okay, so I 
put on Twitter that uh, marrying a spouse who has a different ethnicity than your ancestors is not a breaking of the commandment that says honor your father and mother. And you'll see as we develop over the course of these episodes, because it's clear this is going to be multiple episodes, that these guys argue that the commandment found in Scripture that says honor your father and mother, that's the fourth commandment, the way the Lutherans uh, order commandments, that, that these guys try to argue that that is a breaking of the fourth commandment. If you marry somebody of a different race, that is a breaking of the fourth commandment. So I just put this out there. I said, marrying a spouse who has a different ethnicity than your ancestors is not a breaking of the commandment that says, honor your father and mother. Anyone who says otherwise is breaking the commandment that says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, Corey Mahler, he did not like that. <laughs> okay. So his response is, I, I, I'm a demon. This is a demon, not a pastor. Avoid these wolves because your soul depends on your doing so. Why didn't he just pull up the biblical text that forbids people from marrying others of a different ethnicity? Because he doesn't have any. This guy is all, you know, bash and clang. But there's nothing behind his statements. Nothing. He cannot back him up with scripture. Okay? May his master call him home before he can lead any more sheep astray. That's him basically, basically saying, I hope that Pastor Rosebro dies. Hmm. Sounds like a very Christian thing to say, right? Well, let's continue on. Okay. And then, you know, he, he couldn't leave it alone. He had to go after it again. So he put out another one. A reminder, this man is an open, unrepentant, prideful heretic. I assure you, if I were a heretic, the American Association of Lutheran Churches, the church body that oversees me, okay, that, that I was ordained in, if I were truly a heretic, they'd defrock me. But really, what, what are the heresy charges again? This is heresy to point out that the Bible doesn't forbid you from marrying somebody of a different ethnicity. We continue. Okay. <laughs> so one of their followers, okay, this guy says, it's dishonorable to your ancestors who since the time of the flood maintained racial and genetic integrity. Where's that in the Bible? Hmm? Uh, to breed with members of other races, to create foreign, unrecognizable flesh within your own family. It's a rebellion against God that has permanent consequences. Again, I'm going to need a chapter and a verse for this. So far, you sound just like a Jewish Pharisee because you're adding commandments to the scriptures that just are not there. And here's where we're going to note that when we deal with sola scriptura, Jesus is a sola scriptura guy. Let me, let me give you a text on this. So in the book of Acts, uh, not Acts, Mark, book of Mark chapter seven. Okay. Now here's where you got to make an important distinction. Okay. The Judaism that, that Jesus adhered to is biblical Judaism. The Judaism of the Pharisees is not biblical Judaism. It's actual. It's a. It's a heresy, and so the Pharisees were heretics. And today's modern day Orthodox Judaism is the is the legitimate theological, um, you know, descendant of the religion of the Pharisees. Okay, so today's modern day Judaism, uh, uh, you know, uh, Orthodox Judaism is not biblical Judaism. You just, you just need to know that. It's, it's, a, it's a completely different religion altogether. 
Jesus was not a Pharisee. Jesus was not in any way, shape, or form an Orthodox Jew by how that's defined today. Not at all. He's a biblical Jew. So he he follows biblical Judaism. And Jesus, genetically, by the way, he's a Jew. He's, after all, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay, so Jesus is a Jew. And you'll remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the placard said, King of the Jews, right? Jesus is a Jew. Just get over it. But Jesus is not a Pharisee. Jesus is not an Orthodox Jew, theologically at all. And here's what we're going to note here. Sola Scriptura matters. So here we go. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, they do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to, and listen to what they hold to, the tradition of the elders. That's a different body of of work. Okay, so Pharisees were not sola scriptura guys at all. In fact, the tradition of the elders, I really think that should be capitalized because that's a separate body of work. And at this time it was being written, but before that it was all what was called the oral tradition. It was an oral Torah. Because the way the Pharisees argued that God gave two revelations on Mount Sinai, two. One is the written Torah that you can read, and the other was an oral Torah. And the reason why God gave the oral Torah was so that Gentiles would never know the full truth and therefore they couldn't be saved. You'll note that the Pharisees of old were, by the way we talk about it, they were very racially hateful, <laughs> right? They didn't want Gentiles to know the truth. That that was part of their, their scheme. But what they did is they added to the scripture. And so now this command to wash your hands has come into play. But here's the thing. The command to wash your hands is not found in the Bible. It's not found in the written Torah. The only place you can find it is in the oral Torah. And now the question is, Are you conscience bound to obey the commands of the written, of the oral Torah? That's the question, because here's how it worked, okay? So the the Pharisees, having been in the marketplace among the unwashed masses of people, uh, they, they, they would think of terms of clean and unclean as it relates to being around sinners, right? So if, you, if you're in the marketplace and there's sinners walking through and buying potatoes and things like this, their ick gets on you, their uncleanness gets on you. So according to the oral Torah, the tradition of the elders, what they were required to do upon entering their house, having had having been among the unwashed masses, is this little water ceremony. And the water ceremony goes like this. You take your left hand and you put it over a wash basin and you take a pitcher of water and you pour water. Sorry, uh, you pour. You have to put your hand, left hand face down, palm down first. Pour water on the back of your left hand. Switch, right hand, palm down, pour water on the top of your right hand, Switch again, open up your left hand, have the palm of your left hand up, pour water on the top of the of your open palm left hand, switch it again, do the same with your right hand, palm up, and then you can kind of spritz your hands, and then you are required to say this prayer. I thank you, Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, that you have given us the command to wash our hands. Is that found in the Bible? Nope. 
that's not in scripture. It's in the oral Torah. But now the question is, so the Pharisees have spent some time with Jesus, checking him out, listening to his teaching, watching him heal people and perform miracles. And so they then go into a house and Jesus did not permit his disciples to obey the oral Torah. So Jesus' disciples skip the wash basin and end up inside the, uh, inside the house, probably eating the hors d'oeuvres before anyone else can finish the, uh, the wash, washing ceremony. And this is where the Pharisees want to go to war with him, right? So the Pharisees and all the Jews, they don't eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And so when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of pots and cups and uh, copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Watch Jesus' answers. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and you hold to the tradition of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is, is korban, that is a gift given to God, well, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down and many such things that you do." So you'll note here, uh, Jesus going after Orthodox Judaism, because that's what the Pharisees' religion is. He points out that they've left the commandments of God and they're following the traditions and the commandments of men. And even pulls the prophet Isaiah in here to back that up. Jesus is a sola scriptura guy. But <clears throat> this fellow here says it's dishonorable to marry people that are different racially than your ancestors, okay? So I just basically said, well, I'm going to need a chapter and a verse for this. So far, you sound just like a Jewish Pharisee because you're adding commandments to the scriptures that are just not there, okay? So note here, I then point this out. If the commandment to honor your father and mother forbids people from marrying spouses from different ethnicities, then why doesn't the Bible rebuke Salmon for marrying Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, and Boaz for marrying Ruth, the Moabite. You'll note here, this is positive proof that the Bible does not give a blanket command that you cannot marry a spouse who has a different ethnicity than you. And I would also note that uh, Rahab marrying Salmon. Salmon was a Jew. And I mean a true Jew because he was in the succession. He was in the ancestry of Jesus Christ. So he's from the tribe of Judah. So after the whole uh, fall of Jericho, and remember Rahab the prostitute and her family were saved because she put the scarlet cord outside of her window as the spies had told her to do, right? What happened to Rahab the prostitute? She got married. Okay, after she became part of the children of Israel, she got married. And who'd she marry? Salmon. But here's the issue. Rahab the prostitute is a Canaanite. Oh, that means she's from a different race. 
because you'll note here that the uh, the Jews are from Shem, the son of Noah, Shem. The Canaanites are from Ham. Totally different races, right? If the Bible forbids people marrying somebody from a different race, then why wasn't Salmon rebuked for marrying Rahab the prostitute? The answer is actually simple, right? The answer is simple. The commandment to honor your father and mother does not forbid people from marrying a spouse of a different ethnicity. Those who claim that it does have twisted the scripture through eisegesis and are teaching false doctrines by adding commands that are not in the scripture. The Jewish Pharisees were guilty of this exact same thing. And I would note the, uh, the irony here. And the irony is this, because you'll see as we develop this over multiple episodes, because we have to go that way, is that the, uh, the Mollerites, the, uh, the white Christian nationalists, they are anti-Semitic to the core. Okay. Uh, in fact, Mahler takes issue when I say that Jesus is a Jew, but he is. <laughs> but Jesus isn't an Orthodox Jew, nor is he a Pharisee. But the thing is, is that the Mahlerites and the white Christian nationalists are exactly like the Orthodox Jews and exactly like the Pharisees who were their theological forebears by adding commandments to the scripture that are not there. It's the irony is kind of thick here. Okay. Here we go again. Okay. So this, this fellow, a Mahlerite says it's, it is self-evident that the races were created by God. Self-evident. Oh, okay. And unless you think that all non-Caucasians are a result of sin, which I don't think, and, and were meant to retain their racial identity or, or, or why create them. Uh, see, note here, he can't go to biblical text that says, you Caucasians, you must maintain your racial identity. So he just goes with it's self-evident that God created them and, and they have to be retained. So I fired back at the fellow, quad nonest biblicum nonest theologicum. If it's not in the Bible, it's not theology. So give me a biblical chapter and verse that requires men to, quote, maintain their racial identity because God created them. They can't. They never can. Right. And this is a, this is a strange one. So this, this fellow who goes by the, the, the name of Lutheran based goblin, he's a Mahlerite. He, he says it's so weird that the LCMS entered decline right around the same time it ended its prohibition on interracial marriages. Wow. Okay. Um, and then here, here's another quote from Mahler. The man who advocates for immigration cannot be a Christian. Really? Okay. Yeah, I think, in fact, I'm looking at my time here. We're, we're over an hour. Let, let's, let's, let's do a little bit more work on this, okay? Because here's one of their big arguments. In fact, let me, let me, let me, let me see if I can find this. And it's probably in their episode on Christian nationalism. So let me pull that up. Okay, and so in their episode on Christian nationalism, and it's important to note what they name that episode. They name that episode, Christian nationalism is submission to God. Now, I want, just let that sink in. In their way of thinking, if you don't agree with them, and you're not a Christian nationalist like they are, you are, you are in rebellion to God himself. Whew, man, they better have some biblical text to back that up, right? So, I, in fact, I'll note here, kind of to start things off in this episode, uh, they, they clearly state that God expects Christian nationalism. So let's listen to this quote. 
So today we're going to be talking about Christian nationalism. Uh, this is a subject that has been uh, hot and heavy in the news very recently. Uh, it has been, a number of books have been published. There's a lot of chatter online about it. It's a subject that you and I, Corey, have been talking about for a number of years. It's something we've both written about uh, to some extent in the past. And it's Frankly, we know more about it than a lot of people, just because we've been thinking about it for a long time. Uh, and so this is well-trodden ground for us. We're not going to—this will be more of a, a conversational episode, hopefully, than the last couple, just because we, we can we can freewheel this, and we're going to do a good job because this is our home turf. Um, and the reason is because it is so vitally important to recognize— that a Christian nation is what God desires. Okay, Christian nation is what God desires. Christian nationalism is what God expects from us. All right, there it is. Christian nationalism is what God expects from us. And the way they argue, it's all in the definitions, but they avoid certain terminology that would upset their apple cart. So let me explain. So in this episode on Christian nationalism, again, it's named Christian nationalism is submission to God, which means if you don't agree with them, you're, you're disobeying God, right? Okay. Um, they, from, from the very outset, they begin with genes and races, Okay, and they claim that de the definition of nation is exclusively racial. So let's take a look at that quote, shall we? Two twenty-three. Here we go. All right. So definition of nation is exclusively racial. Now remember how they define race. Race is is, is to be defined according to uh, ethnicity by breeds of humanity. Okay. The reason I'm pointing first to, to the definition of nation is to make clear that it is explicitly racial. And that's a vital point because today nation and country are used as synonyms to say that something is a country or it's a nation. People virtually always mean the same thing. Um, you say the United States is a country. You say it's a nation. No one's going to think you're talking about two different things. When the United States was founded, when the colonies were founded, and then the United States was formed from that, it was a nation. Uh, this was New England. It was founded over 400 years ago by... Again, nation has to do with race. By people coming from England to New England. They were not immigrants. They, they didn't leave one place and go to another place that was different. They went to a new place that was empty, and they recreated as best they could from whence they came. Okay. So then here, let me kind of come up then to his next point that has to do with the preamble of the Constitution. So again, nation is race, okay? Nation is race. Just keep that running around in your head, and you'll kind of get where they're going next. As we, as we look at what nation means, you, know, you had mentioned the, the intermingling. When we skip forward 150 years from the founding of the colonies to when the United States uh, rebelled against England and became its own political entity, uh, I want to point to the preamble to the Constitution, which used to be memorized in school. I don't, it probably isn't anymore. But it reads, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, 
provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. Now, the reason, the, the word that I want to highlight there is ourselves and our posterity. When they said that, they meant it. When we hear it, we don't hear anything. Posterity is really kind of an archaic term that's not used anymore. So I want to take a look at what where that word came from, what it meant when they wrote it. Uh, for the discussions I'm using, and we'll put the link in the show notes, there are two websites that I recommend everyone look at. Whenever you want to have any conversation about what a word means, go to two places. Go to etymonline.com. That's E-T-Y-M as, as in etymology. Uh, now, no, I'm going to speed him up a lot just to kind of get through some of the fluff here to, to where he makes his next point. I will give details going back to where the word first entered English and then its origins in previous predecessor languages. Uh, the other website that is invaluable for any of these discussions uh, is Webster's Dictionary 1828.com. It's a full copy of the original Webster's Dictionary. It was, it was published nearly 200 years ago. The reason this is important is that, as I said, these words are under attack by those who are trying to change the very fabric of existence for us. All right, now I'm going to back this up. Listen to what he says. We've got to get these words right because people are attacking the very fabric of existence. Okay. As I said, these words are under attack by those who are trying to change the very fabric of existence for us. And they do that by making us unable to discuss certain certain things by removing the words or redefining the words that we would use for those discussions. So when you look at what those words meant 200 years ago, it gives an indication, you know, when we're talking about the original American context, what did those guys mean? But it's also valuable just because it well predates almost all the subversion that has occurred in language, especially in, I mean. So the subversion of language is, has, is, was intentional. It's, it's a conspiracy to keep you from recognizing this important truth. And what is the important truth that he's going to be getting at? That anybody who isn't European isn't an American. Watch what he does here. Dictionaries are changing every year at this point. You can go back five years and you'll find a dictionary that doesn't say what it does today. And it's contrary to what it says today because they're being so aggressive about destroying these terms. Now, 1828 was still under the, the thrall of the Enlightenment, but... Beyond the Enlightenment, there was not a lot of subversion present in it. So we're going to look at the definition for posterity from the preamble. It comes from Latin. It means descendants, children, children's children, etc. Indefinitely, the race that proceeds from a progenitor. The whole human race are the posterity of Adam. <laughs> no, so one of the definitions of posterity is the whole human race. Now... That's in the Constitution that it's racial. That's not you and I being... That's... <laughs> so here's what he's doing. His claim is that the preamble of the U.S. Constitution, by saying, and to our posterity, that they were thinking in terms of race that would then exclude anybody who wasn't white European. Racist saying, we hate people and we want to exclude them. We're simply saying when the people who founded this country did so, they understood that it was explicitly racial. I just want to read briefly the race part of the definition for race, also from the 1628 or 1828 uh, Webster. 
the lineage of a family or continued series of descendants from a parent who is called the stock. A race is a series of descendants indefinitely. They're synonyms. They mean exactly the same thing. Posterity and race are interchangeable, unlike country and nation. Okay, now no, he makes that distinction. Country and nation are not interchangeable. So in their way of thinking, okay, God wills for us to be white, racist, Christian, nationalist, because nationalist and white are, are kind of synonymous way of, of talking in their way of parlance, but country and nation are not synonyms, okay? That God wills that, that only nations exist, but not countries, okay? Now, here's where we're going to throw in just to kind of, you know, to add a little bit more fuel to this fire because it's already raging, and that is uh, uh, 400, uh, sorry, 490 is the next quote, and just, just listen to this. Uh, this is absolutely reprehensible, but here we go. So when I say you're not American, you're African, and it's not hateful. When I say you're you're African, but you're not American, let, let me back this up. Listen. Do better. Where they were wrong, be right, but be proud of whatever good they did. So when I say you're not American, you're African, it's not hateful. It's simply precise. And it's precise in a way that has been destroyed by taking the word nation and turning it into a synonym for country. And... So anybody who has, is of African descent, it is, it is Mahler and Woe's contention, they're not American. And again, remember, Christian nationalism is submission to God. This is God's will that they not be considered American. And because, and what are they making the distinction between? They're making the distinction between the word nation, which they say has to do with ethnicity or race, and the word country. Yes, the, the United States is a country right now, but it's, it's wrong to think of it. It was originally founded as a nation, and that nation, everything was implied that everything had to do with race. That's their argument, okay? Here's the issue, okay? And that is, is that this isn't a biblical argument. And the reason being has to do with Romans 13. And here's where we're going to kind of make our last argument for this episode of Fighting for the Faith. And we'll pick up other episodes in the future dealing with this topic. Uh, you know, I might end up like doing one a week of these just to kind of space it out just a little bit. But uh, here, here's where we're going to work this out. Okay. Does Christ, let's come back to their claim, require that Christians submit to the idea of Christian nationalism, okay? And the, of course, nation, in their way of thinking, is centered on race, okay? That we create a Christian ethno-state. Does the Bible require that? No, okay? So here's what Paul writes. And remember what Paul grew up in. Paul grew up in a multi-ethnic empire known as the Roman Empire. In fact, he was a citizen of said Roman Empire. Okay? 
Here's what Paul writes to us Christians, and this is binding on us today. This, in fact, defines biblically what is the role of what is called the left-hand kingdom of Christ. We talk about the right-hand kingdom and the left-hand kingdom. Right-hand kingdom is the church. Left-hand kingdom is is the state. But it's always important to note that we're talking about the right hand and the left hand of Jesus, okay? So we talk about the right hand and the left-hand kingdom of Christ. What is the responsibility of the left-hand kingdom? And how is the left-hand kingdom biblically defined? Is it defined by race or nation or something else? Watch what this text says. So let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Uh Uh-huh. It does not say nation. We as Christians are to be subject to the exousia, and then here, this is kind of a, uh, a big word in Greek, the uh, hooperkousais, okay, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the governing authorities. Notice as Christians, we're to be subject to the governing authorities. It doesn't say that we're to be subject to nations as ethnostates doesn't say that. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no exousia authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So I take a look at the United States of America. I'm a citizen of the United States of America. And the United States of America is a multi-ethnic, multi-racial Uh, empire, if you would, comprised of 50 different states. It's a constitutional republic, and the the general idea within the United States as the governing authority here is the idea of equality for all, egalitarianism, regardless of your race, your creed, or your your gender, whatever. The, 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 The general goal of the United States is equality under the law. Everybody gets treated the same way. And I would note that that according to Scripture, the United States is a governing authority. It doesn't say anything about it being a nation, at least in the ethnic sense. Okay, it's a governing authority, and who established it? God, Christ did. Okay, so is is the United States a Christian nation? No. Is the United States uh, opposed to God? Yes, in many ways, absolutely, okay? Um, but I'm to be submitted to the governing authorities the same way the Apostle Paul was submitted to the emperor of Rome, right? There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct. And here's where we're going to point this out. This is something we're going to come back to in the pre, in, in next installments of Fighting for the Faith on this topic, okay? Rulers are not a terror for good conduct. Does that mean that a governing authority can do whatever they want? No. Governing authorities are set up by God for the purpose of punishing evildoers. Okay, keep that in mind. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. This tells you the standard that all governing authorities are to be held to. For he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he, the governing authority, 
is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, must one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities, here we go again, are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to what pay all pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So this text makes it clear that if you live in the United States, this is a governing authority set up by God, and God does not require it to be an ethno state. Okay, that's not required. What is required of this governing authority is that they punish evildoers, right? That's their job. Does the U.S. do this well? No, it's doing it poor, poor, more poor by the minute. In fact, I would note that if you are really upset about how unchristian the United States has become, if you live here in the United States, what's the solution? If you want the Christian, if you want the United States to be more Christian, that would mean you have to make more Christians out of the population. How does one do that? Answer, by preaching the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You cannot expect un- non-Christians to behave in a Christian manner. Uh, you can sit there and say, well, the standard is the law, and you can threaten to punish them if they don't obey the law. But you'll note that in a representative republic, um, that uh, as, as the church becomes less and less of an influence in the broader culture, fewer and fewer of the politicians who are elected to go to Washington hold to Christian values. Why, is th- why are things as bad as they are right now within the United States? It has nothing to do with immigration policy. The reason things are bad in the United States is because the church has stopped preaching the gospel, because the, per- the church is in open rebellion to God. The fact that Ken Copeland has billions of dollars is just one example, one symptom of, of the bigger problem. The church has stopped preaching the word correctly, it is no longer teaching what's in accord with sound doctrine, and they're not calling sinners to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They're teaching them all kinds of other stuff. Sow a seed offering, and God will bless you. Uh, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and, and scratching, itching ears. And here's the thing. You want things to get better in the United States, you don't even need an act of Congress to start waging war against the false teachers in the church and getting them out so that churches preach the truth, okay? You don't need an act of Congress or a president or any, anybody to start reforming the church so that the, the broader culture is hearing the gospel and being brought to faith in Christ. All you got to do is get rid of the false teachers and preach the gospel, yeah, you, you get the idea. So um, we'll come back to this 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 thing here, by the way, because Romans chapter thirteen, which defines, uh, you know, the, the you know the the governing authorities that God has set up and what that what they are created to do and why they're created to do it. This is going to have further ramifications as it relates to the white Christian nationalists who are calling for segregation. Because you'll note that segregation is predicated on the idea that we're going to judge an ethnic group guilty of sins, not because they've committed them, 
but because they have a greater possibility, a potential probability of committing them, therefore they have to be given a different treatment under the law. Okay, that's not what uh, Romans 13 teaches. The purpose of the governing authorities is to punish the evildoer. And if there's an evildoer, in order to establish that somebody is an evildoer, there has to be a judicial process to determine that. Because God, in his word, doesn't permit a charges to be leveled against any human being unless that those charges are established by the evidence of two or three witnesses before a proper judge. Okay, and in the Christian nationalist way of thinking, uh, well, you know, people who have ha- African descent, uh, they have a higher probability of, of performing heinous crimes like homicide and rape. Therefore, they have to be treated differently. They have to be treated as guilty, even though the individuals are not guilty. They're judged guilty as a group. But what Christ has set up the governing authorities to do? Uh-uh. Governing authorities cannot do that. They have to punish the evildoer, which requires a due process to establish that somebody is an evildoer before God's wrath falls on them. So these are things we'll talk about in future episodes of Fighting for the Faith, because as I've been doing this episode, I can kind of see the pace I'm able to do this at. There's so much more we've got to cover. But uh, this is this is the first bite, if you would, out of a really big, horrible, rancid burrito, one that I don't enjoy eating. But uh, stay tuned for f- future episodes episodes of Fighting for the Faith, where we cover the topic of white Christian nationalism and especially especially the Mollerite branch that is manifested within the Lutheran Church. And so hopefully you found this helpful. If so, all the information on how you can share the video is down below. And a quick shout out to all of the people who support us financially by joining our crew. Um, It is you who make it possible for us to do the work that we are doing in defending the Christian faith against attacks from both outside and within the Christian faith, and proclaiming Christ Him crucified and showing what sound doctrine truly is. So again, thank you for your support and making it possible for us to do what we're doing. So until next time, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and His vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.